Hello, and welcome to the Timeline of Classics podcast. I'm your host, Gail Ledbetter, the author of Timeline of Classics, Historical Context for the Good and Great Books. It's my goal to help you to fall in love with literature, connect with history, and be able to teach the good and great books. So, classroom teachers, classical educators, and teaching parents with kiddos snugger on the sofa, this is for you. Ralph Waldo Emerson once said, There are 850,000 volumes in the Imperial Library at Paris. If a man were to read industriously from dawn to dark for 60 years, he would die in the first alcove. Well, (laughs) that is certainly not necessary. Let us help you wade through the countless and sometimes even scary stacks and stacks at the library. Our resource, Timeline of Classics, Historical Context for the Good and Great Books, was created to help you make sense of world history through the literature of the ages. Getting a literary education is actually easier than you might think. So, stick around. If you haven't already done so, please head over to iTunes and subscribe to the Timeline of Classics podcast. Let's get started with today's episode. You're listening to part two of three episodes with this guest, so please don't miss a single thing. Head on over to TimelineOfClassics.com where you'll find part one, part two, and part three with this special guest, as well as all the show notes. And I gotta tell you, these episodes are loaded, so please don't miss the opportunity to go and check out all the links and all the resources that we mention here. It's my great, great privilege to welcome today's guest. He's a professional storyteller, historian, author, voice artist, teacher, entertainer, conference speaker, and, well, I'm sure I left something out of that award-winning resume. His golden voice has graced the rooms of our home and the speakers of our van over the many years that we spent raising each of our four kids. I could not be more grateful for the lifetime of memories through story that he's given to my kids and me. Would you please join me in welcoming Jim Weiss. Well, I, have to t- I haven't even told you this because I kind of reviewed my notes last night, but I, I went back through uh, all the uh, survey responses that I had gotten from um, from people who follow me and, you know, uh, a, sur- a special survey I had sent out. I have mm-hmm. five pages of questions for you. <laughs> From from, from different moms who either know know about your work or they don't, and they just want to know how, you know, how do you tell a good story? So I will not. Um, we certainly don't have have. Hey, time. listen! I finished my recording. I've got lots of time. <laughs> uh, right. <laughs> go go for it, Gail. We may have to. We may have to come come. 
you know, call, call, have another call and, uh, you know, do another session. Um, I think I mentioned to you right when I was about to start the recording here mm-hmm. today, um, yeah. my voice started cracking up and I would love to, for you to tell me what to do for that. Well, like when your voice starts to go out, what, what's, what's a good thing to kind of restore your, your failing voice? <laughs> well, the first, the first and most obvious answer is, if your voice starts to fail while you're homeschooling your child, put on a Jim Weiss recording and go rest. Okay. <laughs> okay, so I can the, do that. The first thing. Okay. Well, this is funny. You know, I, I tell people, if if your activities include a lot of speaking during the day, and this this is something that might not occur to a lot of people. Whether this is true because you're a salesperson or a courtroom attorney or a homeschooling parent, uh, I actually tell people, go get a couple of voice lessons from a local voice teacher. Mm. Mm. Go find somebody and say, can you just teach me the breathing and show me a set of scales? I'll tell you what, Gail, Mm. I I trained as a singer. Mm -hmm. And the reason that I can go into a studio, my studio here, or I engineer my own recordings Mm -hmm. or, or another publisher's studio, and record for hours and hours is because I'll have warmed up my voice. And wow. that's that's one thing. And it doesn't have to be a big, long, drawn-out, you know, year-after-year kind of thing. You want to tell a voice teacher, hey, you know what, this is why I'm doing this. I, mm-hmm. I talk a lot, uh, and, I, and it, I know that it's exhausting to me and not good for my throat to be doing this all the time. Can you just give me some stuff that I can use? So, so that I have more energy. Because what happens is it, it becomes exhausting to be producing the sound from your throat instead of from your breathing. Mm-hmm. And, um, and the more exhausted you get, the worse the voice gets, too. So it's a, it's, a, it's a vicious cycle. The other things I would say as far as, and this is funny, when I had just started voice lessons, I was in high school. And uh, I grew up in Highland Park, Illinois, which is the... Uh, um, the summer home of the Chicago Symphony, the mm. Ravinia Music Fe- Ravinia Music Festival was like three blocks from our home, and I used to go oh, listen wow. to the symphony art, hear Ella Fitzgerald or Louis Armstrong or, you know, whoever was touring, and it's still a very big thing with a lot of popular performers as well as classics. And uh, the high school stage in which I was performing in plays and musicals, twice a year they had guest artists, and the guest artists were like. Andre Segovia, the world's greatest classical guitarist, or um, singers from the Metropolitan Opera, and so on. And one year, it must have been my sophomore year, because I freshman or sophomore year, because I was just starting voice lessons. I had strained my throat because I was just starting voice lessons. I didn't have the breathing down yet, and I was working on a high school musical, and. Um, I got to go backstage after a concert from one of the big metropolitan opera stars. You know, this is a guy who played at all the great opera houses. And I stood in line with a few other students who were allowed to go back. And I finally got up to him. And all I had to do was say to him, hello. And he did a classic double take, arched an eyebrow, looked down at me and said, young man, you have strained your throat. Go home, go home at once and gargle with salt water. (laughs) So I did, and it worked. Um, What I usually tell people to do is uh, 
suck on some ice and follow that with some hot tea, ideally mm. with honey or honey and lemon. Mm. Uh, the honey will help coat your throat if it's sore. The lemon helps cut through any phlegm and stuff. What you don't want to do, ideally, um, is before you're going to start talking a lot, you don't want to be doing any uh, eating any dairy. And the worst of all is chocolate. I'm so sad to tell that to people. Oh, boy. <laughs> I'm sure that is sad. Yeah. Save it as... Save it as the reward for when you're done for the day yes. because, because it'll goop up your throat and, and make it much harder to, to speak. So ideally, warm up a little bit. Uh, even if you don't do that, at least you know suck on a little ice, follow it with a hot drink, and have that nearby. And, um, and if things get really bad, gargle with a little salt water. And he was the, the, the opera singer was right. You know, I've used that. Over the years, it, I very seldom have that problem because I have a trained voice. But there have been times when uh, I've been on the road, and you know, going in and out of hotels or airplanes where the air is different, uh, and it and it, mm. it can affect my throat. And I, this is what I do. So there's there's one secret. Okay. Yes. Well, that is, I'm, I'm going to take all of that to heart because um, uh, in, in my lifetime, I have certainly had to use my voice a lot and I, I yeah. have not known what to do for that. So thank you for that, uh, those tips because I, I will certainly um, try that out for, for goodness sake. Um, well, I have to tell you, you just told a funny story. I'm going to tell you a funny story. Um, Good. My husband of 31 years has always made fun of me for my terrible um, storytelling um, abilities because <laughs> I, I really, I am so bad. He, he I mean, what, what is even worse is often I can remember part of like maybe a joke or something and then I forget <laughs> then I forget the punchline and he is like oh my yeah. goodness how can you be this bad and so it, it's true and so he often would say could you just please get to the point you know because <laughs> I'm wanting to fill in yeah. all these little details and you know information and he's like please get to the point so I'm just curious if you could tell us what are some elements of a good story? Okay, yes, I can. Uh, and, and I will begin with what I consider the two unbreakable rules. And there are very few rules. You get to do it your own way. But there are a few things that I think are pretty, pretty much universal. The first rule is if you're going to tell me a story or read a story aloud to me, try to make it one you really enjoy yourself. Mm-hmm. Because people can pick up on that, and consciously or not. And if you love a story, you'll get enthused by it too. Um, they may enjoy a different element of it than you particularly do, but they'll get turned on to it. Whereas if you tried to tell me a story you don't care about, it's going to fall flat every time. So that's rule number one. Rule number two, and this was a hard would have been a hard thing for you to try to deal with, but I'm sure you confronted it when you were trying to teach all four of those kids at the same time all the way from high school you know all the way down is to try to remember that when you're telling a story you should always think first about to whom am I telling it because you can tell the same story a lot of different ways and draw different things out there 
there, I can tell certain Greek myths. There's some Greek myths I won't tell to anybody but adults. But among those that I do, there are different ways you can tell the same story to a high schooler, to a, uh, a sixth grader, to a, 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 an eight-year-old, to a five-year-old, uh, and even a three-year-old. Um, so you're translating the material, and you mm. want to keep it, that in mind. Your husband also uh, struck on one of the real points. Very often, I'll, I'll take in just a moment. I'll show you what the actual structure of a story is, mm-hmm. the stuff that has to be there. But what your husband was right about is this: very often, the difference between a really gifted storyteller or author and someone who is not is the ability to know what to leave out. It's so hard because sometimes those little details are just so fascinating. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and you say, oh, I've got to tell them this part, you know. And sometimes you can do that. But if you put in too many of those details, if they are breaking the flow, the direction of the story, mm-hmm. you're damaging the thing instead of helping it. Hemingway used to say he knew it was time to send his manuscript in to be published when he had taken out everything he could take out. Yes. And, and that's a, a huge difference. I call this the rock and the river. You're, it's like you're telling the story and it's as if you're on this boat being carried smoothly down this beautiful river uh, by the current and suddenly this up ahead, this right in the middle of the channel of the river, there's this big, sharp, deadly, but beautiful rock. It's the detail that's breaking, that, that threatens to, to break the flow. Mm-hmm. And you have to have the discipline to, to take it out. Make it, a, make it the basis of another story or tell them something about it separately afterwards, but take it out if, it, if it's going to destroy things. So having said that, basically when you tell a story, this is what has to be there. Um, in the beginning of the story, we need to meet the main character or characters And I happen to think that the key to a great story, what turns it from an average story into your favorite movie or book, is that you get hooked into a particular character. Mm. You're experiencing it through his or her eyes. And that's true whether it's some superhero or whether it's Dorothy Gale from Kansas landing in Oz. Um, We have to know something about that character. Um, If it's Hercules, we've got to know that he's brave and incredibly strong and that he goes out and saves people. If it's Sherlock Holmes, we've got to know that this is somebody who knows how to, uh, who's trained himself to observe and notice details and piece them together as clues to solve mysteries. If it's Cinderella, we just need to know that not only is this a beautiful young woman, but she's a kind-hearted, you know, warm, generous young woman too. And we got to know that, so we'll be rooting for her. Right. Also, so, who's my character? When and where is the story happening? If it's a modern story, you probably don't have to say one Friday in the year 2018, you know, in, in New York City. You can, you can just start to tell it. But if it's a different time or place, we need to know that because there are going to be different rules, you know. Otherwise, I interrupt you halfway through and say, excuse me, Gail, why didn't they get that information off their computers? And you have to say, oh, Sorry, I forgot to tell you, Jim, this happened 2,000 years ago. Right. You know, so, so we, need, we need to know, okay, um, 
and you can either describe it or just say one day in the year 1217 in France or you can try and paint a word picture of a medieval castle or whatever either way so who's my character when and where is it happening and then you set us up for the story now something will push us into the story a challenge or a question that the character has to deal with mm-hmm. and the whole middle of the story is going to be a series of events where the character is trying to face that challenge or set of challenges mm-hmm. at the beginning right at that moment where Hercules is saying wow they asked me to fight a nine-headed fire-breathing dragon how do I do that or Sherlock Holmes has been asked to find the crown jewel that was stolen from the queen you know how do I do that how from almost an infinite number of suspects how do I narrow it down somebody comes up and gives them a piece of information or or pushes them in a certain direction um, if it's Dorothy having landed in Oz, it's going to be Glinda the Good Witch telling her to follow the yellow brick road. Just get her started. So the middle, the whole middle of the story is the person following that path and those challenges. If it's fiction, you're probably building up to the biggest challenge near the end. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is not always true that neatly in history. Until And we're going to watch the character figuring out what he or she needs to do to face that big challenge until they're ready to do it. And they say, okay, I'm ready to do it. And then they try. And I call this the moment of aha, when we find out what happens. And then all that's left after that is, after this event, what has happened to my characters? You know, so who are my characters? When and where does it happen? What pushes them into it? Somebody gives them the first little push in a given direction, the the challenges that they meet using that special something, you know, Sherlock Holmes's brilliance, Hercules' strength. And then they, they actually face and confront the final challenge and what happens to them. Mm-hmm. That's a story. That's 99% of the stories in the world. Wow. And, and here's what's interesting. I have to add one thing. When we're, when we're learning that pattern, consciously or not learning that pattern, Here's one of the amazing things that the brain researchers have now established scientifically, and the rest of us already knew, which is that you're learning how to learn when you learn about the pattern of a story. You don't know you're doing that. Wow. But you are actually learning how to organize material in such a way that it follows this to this to this to this to this. The 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 thing and, and our brains are actually wired to follow the structure I just gave you. Wow. And, and and that's one reason why if I give you a bunch of data or if I give you that same information in the context of a story, you will remember it much better and for much longer if you heard it in a story than if you are just given the information. Some studies have said it's as much as 20 times uh, more certain that you'll remember it. And our, our brains are actually, th- that's why story is really the most powerful teaching tool we've got. Well, I, I, I would just mention really quickly, I follow a business podcast, um, and it's called uh, Building a Story Brand. 
and it's mm-hmm. talking to businesses, but it's real. It's how to relate um, what you do as a in your business, how to clarify your message uh, to where you can uh, people can land on your website. They can um, immediately relate with your story and what it mm-hmm. is that you do and how you can help solve uh, their um, uh, well their challenges. If you have a yeah. product they need or if you offer a service that could could help them in some way, so their whole thing is about how to how to um, present your message as a business owner in the form of a story so that this person can definitely enter into that subconsciously enter into to the story that that you are doing and they can see themselves there and see that you are there to guide them and to help them in whatever their challenge is so i just thought that was interesting um that's that someone else has picked up on that whole idea of story and how powerful it is and you know what's interesting is, you know, because we're so sensitive to to all of this in our family, we're very conscious when we, on those relatively rare occasions when we watch television as opposed to using it, just using it to play a video of something, movie, you know. Uh, it's so interesting though to see commercials, national commercials, and if, where you come out at the other end and you'll turn to the person with you and say, "What were they selling?" Or who was that? They, it's like they, they, they don't realize that they've got to be able to, to do this on a, on a very compressed time frame. They've got to give us a sense of who they are and what they do. And, and, I, and I think to myself, you know how much money it costs to make a, a commercial that's going to go national and to put it up there? Hmm. And, all, and there are all these companies that are wasting their time. And it's not just companies. I, I got invited to go down to the United States Air Force University in Alabama where they um, teach officers and also where they offer a variety of, of learning experiences for people from essentially every U.S. government agency and from many other governments that, that send people over there too. And they asked me to talk about stories and the importance of it. And I was saying, you know, going back, Gail, to what I said a minute ago about, you know, to whom am I telling this? Mm-hmm. I said, you know, you've got a bunch of audiences. You've got, you, you know, you've got um, the people you're interacting with around your Air Force base, wherever that base may be domestically. You've got people overseas who have different cultures from ours and you want to be able to bridge that gap. You've got the people that you might want to be encouraging to join the Air Force, and you want to let them know what the Air Force is about. You've got people who are already in the Air Force, and you want to reinforce uh, and make cohesive for those people um, what your story is all about. You even have Congress um, who, the members of Congress are figuring out, gee, do we give more money to the Air Force this year or do we give or do we cut their their funding and give more money over here to somebody else? And you want to convince them of the importance of what you do. And the way you do that is you take some of the stories, true stories of what the Air Force has done for people 
and you sh- and you uh, and you tell the stories. And I talked to them about this. I when I, um, I was working in that philanthropic organization when we were starting our company, uh, they asked me to write letters, fundraising letters, and. On the board of that organization at the time was a really great guy whose profession was writing letters for businesses and philanthropic organizations and publishing them. He had a whole company for this. And he was out of town one day, maybe two weeks after I'd taken the job. And he was out of town and there was some sort of emergency. And the executive director of the organization said, Jim, could you take a crack at writing a letter? I'd never written a fundraising letter, but I was a storyteller. Mm-hmm. And I wrote, I wrote about certain people. I told the stories of, se- of several people that we had helped and how it had made a difference. And that letter generated a third more uh, in, in terms of dollars coming back to us than any letter that this professional had ever sent out. Wow. And it was because of the stories. And the other thing that happened was that I realized instinctively how important the opening was. The opening of a story, it's not, this is not so critical if you're just sitting around the kitchen table or if you're in the car sharing stories, but for something like getting a fundraising letter, I have seven seconds in which to engage somebody's attention enough that they'll want to go on. If I haven't in seven seconds, they'll crumple the letter and toss it out. Mm-hmm. And that's that's been confirmed in in, in many studies so my letters sometimes I'd spend a whole morning just writing the first sentence or two getting what what we call the hook yes and then going on to write the stories of people and and it goes back to what I said I, I need to know who the characters are and I need to get caught up in who they are and what what they're about um, wow. And that's what stories are about. And that's why you want to introduce stories of different kinds of people with different backgrounds. And, I, and without getting into a, 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 any political rap of any kind here, I have to say, this is more important right now than at almost any time in our lifetimes. Mm-hmm. Um, we're, we, no matter what your political views are, uh, it's pretty safe to say that we all acknowledge that we are very divided right now as a, as a nation and uh, as a civilization and um, it's very easy to look at other people as them you know they and um, and separate ourselves from one another and I that's not what I'm interested in I may not agree with everybody, but I got to understand who they are. And the way you do that is through people's stories. Mm-hmm. And it's very hard if you know somebody's story and understand where they're coming from. It becomes much harder to turn such people into they, them, the enemy, the foe. Yes. Instead, you start thinking of them as human beings and, and you start looking for those areas where there is some overlap. And for this reason, more than any other, perhaps, even culturally right now, we need to be telling our stories and we need to be learning one another's stories from other places, too. Mm. There's my harangue for the day. <laughs> wow. Wow. What? Wow. Well, that, that is definitely, uh, I, I can say, the more I get to know people, you know, there, there may be someone that kind of rubbed me the wrong way 
the first few times I interacted with them and mm-hmm. maybe have felt like I really wasn't wanting to spend a whole lot of time with them. But, you know, o- over time, as you, as you said, after you get to know a person, you hear more of their story, you learn more of their background and, you know, how they have come to be the person they are. I mean, it just melts everything into just a deep love. <laughs> so I'm sure that's what our our nation and and just you know civilization could could use a whole lot more of is is empathy for one another and mm-hmm. and just um, a change of heart. Wow. And that's something that we need to be passing to our kids. Along and along with the the simple message to them, at some point when you're teaching them about history to say you know the times we're living in right now one day are going to be history and your children or grandchildren are probably going to say to you wow what was it like growing up back then what did you what do you remember about this thing that was going on in the in the nation or how how were you educated all those kinds of things remember it honey because they're going to ask you just the way you've asked me or you've asked grandma Hmm. you know and also one little little thing that I like to say is one of the reasons our country has worked is that we were uniquely blessed with the fact that I think almost without exception all of our founders were history fans yes (laughs) they had all studied history and they all learned from it and they learned what they didn't want to do when they founded this new government system and they and they learned what they wanted to try that was new and different and it was because they had they they weren't they weren't just doing this by the seat of the pants at their pants they had a whole background and they studied you know jefferson wrote the declaration he wasn't here to write to work on the constitution because he was in france representing us at the time but his best friend was Madison they were best friends for half a century and in half a century they never had a fight or an argument they got along so well and Jefferson and Madison were corresponding across the Atlantic you know a letter would take three or four weeks to get there about the need for a new constitution and they agreed it should be a democratic republic and Jefferson being Jefferson and the great lover of books and learning that he was went out and bought and sent back to Madison literally a a crate of every book he could find on the subject of democratic republics. And he sent it to Madison, he said, Jemmy, read this. And Madison was a genius too, you know, and he read everything and he became the great knowledgeable student of, of the history of democratic republics going back to Greece, 25 centuries before our time. So when the Constitutional Convention came along, he was the guy who knew more than anybody else what to uh, what he thought should work and not work and why. And he became the father of the Constitution and the Bill of Rights. That's that's something a lot of other countries have not had. They didn't have that blessing that we happen to have had. Uh, that help, help, helps to account for why our system is what it is. Wow. Well, I, um, <clears throat> this, is, this is just fascinating. Um, talking to you, Jim, is certainly 
like uh, just having access to an encyclopedia. <laughs> I am not kidding. Um, well, I, I have to, I'm just looking over some of the questions. Uh, Good. If you wouldn't I'll try mind. and make them more brief answers. <laughs> no, no, no. You take, you, you, you elaborate all you want. I, I do mean it. Um, this is just such a privilege today. Um, you've been listening to episode nine of the Timeline of Classics podcast. For show notes from today's episode, please visit TimelineOfClassics.com, the home of Timeline of Classics, historical context for the good and great books. I'd love it if you'd leave a star rating for us on iTunes, or better yet, please share our podcast with a friend. The Timeline of Classics podcast is just one of the many resources we've created to help you fall in love with literature, connect with history, and think deeply about the good and great books. Join us again for the remainder of my conversation with master storyteller Jim Weiss. And as always, thanks for listening.